Would you guys turn, please, to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been working our way through uh, the, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And as, as Pastor O'Malley said, each week at the end of the message, we ask, what is a takeaway? What is something you heard today that you want to apply to your life this week or in the coming weeks, right? And so we encourage you, take notes as we work through this. Here's something we've said each time we've, we've uh, been in 1 Corinthians, that Paul is writing to the church. It's a particular message to a particular church, the church in Corinth. And as he does so, he gives us some things that help us understand what it means to be a church. Now, he does this by identifying 10 problems inside the church. And all of the problems have a theme to them, that they're about unity and purity. How do we bring unity inside the church, and how do we bring purity to the church? And so today, Paul gets to issue number eight, which is about communion. Now, we'll do communion here at the end of the message, as we do each week. And I can tell you one of the things that over the last, I don't know, six months or so, that has been really good for us in communion is we have started clarifying or speaking to who should participate in communion a little more clearly or strongly might be a way to say that, right? And, 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 and qualifying, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And that really comes out of just kind of recognizing that in America today, if you live here and you celebrate like Christmas and Easter and you're not a Hindu, a Buddhist, or an atheist, you kind of consider yourself a Christian, right? And that it's a lot more cultural sometimes than it is faith or a, a life of being devoted to Jesus. And so we've started saying things a little more clearly around communion. And some of the really good responses we've had is people identifying, hey, maybe I shouldn't participate in communion right now, or hey, maybe I should have a conversation about being baptized, or, or whatever. And it's been really healthy for our church. Now, it may sound odd to hear that abstaining from communion might be healthy for our church, but what that is is people recognizing, hey, my life is not in line with what Christ is calling us to, and therefore, I want to take time to repent and approach communion appropriately. Now, Paul's going to speak to the church about how they're doing it. Now, we don't have the same issue as Corinth, right? We have some similar issues. And so we'll unpack what are they dealing with, and then how do we do it? And I'll give some examples of how we do that today. But I want to first give you a kind of a bit of word play, a, a word that Paul has been using all along in the book, in the, in the letter, the, the book we call 1 Corinthians, right? And he's been using this language of body, and body means the local church. He's saying the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. You, the church in Corinth, are the body of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean you're the only body of Christ. It doesn't mean you're the global body of Christ. You're the local church. Right? The local expression of faith in Corinth is a church, the church in Corinth. Paul's been using this. I'm going to put two verses up, and I, I picked these two verses for you specifically. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 and 1 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, 10 is the passage before this, 12 will be the next one, but because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, note communion, one bread, right? We who are many, we're one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So Paul is tying 
the body, the local church, into communion in the bread. Now, we'll understand that a little better in a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 12. Next slide, Ashley. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So the body here for Paul almost always is the church, right? Now, he does talk in another chapter about the sins you commit in your own bodies, and he pluralizes it, which is different. When he says body, he almost always means the church. That's important for us today because as we get into communion, Paul's going to use that language. He's going to tie communion in to the local church and how it applies to us. So be thinking as we read body, which, which, what is Paul saying? All right? So here's a main idea for today, the Lord's Supper, communion. Communion proclaims both unity in the church through Christ's body in the bread and purity through forgiveness of sins in the cup. A right understanding of the Lord's Supper includes the whole church and not just the individual. So if there's a place where I want us to kind of move how we think today is we typically approach communion. If we do this, if we examine ourselves at all, likely we do. If we do, we're examining ourselves as an individual. Paul is going to take that a step further. I want us to grow a step further, and I want us to see that it also, not just the individual, if I have sin in my life that I'm unwilling to repent of, yes, I should abstain from communion. Yes, that's individual. That's just me. But we also need to see how it applies to the body, the church. All right. 1 Corinthians 11, we're starting about in the middle at verse 17. You guys need a Bible? There's some Bibles on the chairs in front of you. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, I've been told, and I've asked some, uh, I've just been told by some trusted people and, and people I love and care about, they're like, hey, you talk a lot about sin. That's a fair critique, right? That I always tell people, I preach like an angry Old Testament prophet, right? I mean, like, I feel like my name should be Obadiah or something, right? What it is, is that there is what God is calling us to, that there's a place where God is calling us, and that I'm passionate about that place where God is calling us, and the thing that stands in between us and that place typically is us. It's not God, it's us. And the, the us part is typically sin, right? Well, that can come off as a negative, right? That can come off like a negative message all the time. Now, through the way I'm seeing it, it doesn't make it say that that's how you're hearing it, but that can come off negative. How I see it is that as we strive for this, that's positive. As the gospel empowers us to get from here to there, that's positive, right? And so I was looking at us thinking about that, and this passage today, you are hard-pressed to find a positive thing in the entire passage. Sometimes the positive is in the removal of the negative. You with me? Sometimes the danger is here, and the removal of the danger is also the blessing. Make sense? That's what we'll see today. And we'll talk about that a little bit, because I want to make sure we understand how this applies to us. So Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Remember the church, or the body. Church is not a building. Church is not a service. Church is the people. It's not just the people scattered, but when the people come together, that's church. That's how the Bible defines church. The Greek word, ecclesia, you've heard that a lot. 
means assembly, right? The church gathered. He says, so when you come together, that's what we're doing. He says, not for the better, it's for the worse. So when we showed up at church today, I believe 100% of us expected it was a good thing, right? Whether you're like, I get to sing, I get to pray, I get to learn, I get to see my buddy, whatever. Whatever you're thinking, it's a positive. Paul is saying when you get together, it's a negative, not a positive. It should be for the better, it's actually for the worse, right? So church gatherings should be a blessing in and of themselves. We gather, we get to hear from God, we get to pray to God, we get to respond to God, we get to celebrate Christ, the gospel, in communion, which is a means of grace, a spiritual strengthening of sanctification. Like it, it grows us, right? So it should be all good. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, when you're gathering, you're polluting it so much that it's becoming a negative, right? So I'll give you an example. If you show up today and you're here, and you hear about sin, and you hear about something that relates to your life. You're like, okay, I'm either doing this and that's wrong, or I'm not doing this that I need to do. Either way, right, that you find something that, that God would have you change. We'll just call that sin. Now you know if you refuse to do something about that, you're now accountable, right? Now you know, now you're accountable for what you know, so if you leave here unchanged, you're probably worse off. Fair? Does that make sense? Try this again. Is that fair? Okay, good. Thank you. All right. So he's saying the same idea, but he's saying it around communion, right? So we come here, we should come expectant. And, and maybe our expect, expectation should be to change. Or a better way might even say to be changed by God, right? That we would be transformed, right? That's what the gospel does. It continues to change us. Okay. Verse 18, we're going to read this a couple times. Let me just read the first section. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, right? So he's repeated that now twice. When you come together, when you gather, that's the actual definition of church, right? When, when Christ's people who belong to one another here gather. That's what he's talking about, right? Now, this passage is about communion. So what do we learn about communion? Very simple. When you come together as a church, he says, right? Communion is something we do when we come together as a church, it's not something we do at home. It's not something we do in community groups. It's not something we do on men's retreats even. It's when we come together as a church, right? It's a church thing, right? And so even in the word, now the Lord's Supper is what Paul's going to use. Whether you use the word the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever you're used to hearing, we're talking about the same thing, the bread and the cup, right? The, the symbols that Christ has given us to proclaim the gospel over ourselves, that's what we're talking about. We use the word communion, but listen to the word, right? I think even when Jacob was praying earlier, he talked about communion with God, okay? And I heard that, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to say that in a minute. This is communion with one another and with God. So when we talk about the, the bread and the cup here, when we take communion, we're doing so corporately, meaning as a body, Corpus, body, right? Not corporately like a business. We're doing it collectively, together, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Lord's Supper mean, or, or cannot rightly be understood outside the church gathering. Does that make sense? It can't be rightly understood or practiced outside the church because it is communion with one another. It's like if you have a family Sunday dinner, you don't have a family Sunday dinner in several places, 
you have a family Sunday dinner around a table somewhere. And this is our family meal. This is our family celebration, if you will. All right, verse 18, start it again. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, or another way of translating that line is, I believe what you've said. It's, it, it reads a little different. But For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So the issue that Corinth has, or let's say their sin that Paul is pointing out, is division in the church. Now I want to take that a step further. He's already said that, division, factions, right? Division means to take something that is whole and to put it into parts, right? If you take 12 and you divide by two, you have two equal parts of six, right? Simple. That's what division is. You're taking the whole and you're dividing it. You're, giving, you're making parts out of something that should be a whole, right? So in the context here, here's what's going on. There are socially more elite people in the church, whether that means they have a higher position in life, they have more money, they have more influence, whatever it is. We've seen this get dealt with in other passages in 1 Corinthians, but they're going ahead and they're taking communion without some of the other people that have, in one case, it's going to definitely say those who are poorer, those who don't have enough. And so they're, they're dividing the church in communion, right, which is what's so uh, mind-blowing to Paul is like, okay, like that's the very thing that should unify you. You're dividing. So I want to break that down into something usable for us. Here's what they're doing. They're not valuing one another in the church, right? They don't value this person, so they go on and do things without them as if they don't matter. You with me? I want to talk about how we do that today. So how do we not value one another in the church? The same way that brings division, ways that bring division. I just wrote down just kind of some things. When we don't value the gathering of people, like when we don't prioritize what Jesus has called us to, what the New Testament calls us to is to be a part of a local body, belonging to one another. When we don't prioritize the gathering of that and we prioritize other things, we actually bring division into the church. Now, there's other ways. Gossip. Gossip is somebody talking to somebody about somebody else, and by nature, that divides, that separates, that puts people in categories or on teams, right? And another way is sometimes by affinity. Now, it's a pretty diverse church in here, like at least ethnically very diverse. But we all have this tendency towards hanging out with people that look like us, right? And sometimes that affinity can be division. You know, but this group sitting over here, this group sitting over here. Now, we don't do a whole lot of that here. But I think our biggest struggle is not prioritizing one another and the gathering with one another. So I wrote some things down. When we work instead of commit to church and choose work over a body. Now, sometimes you can't control your schedule. I get that. When you choose to do these things over the choice of church, that's what I'm talking about. Here's another example. We choose school, sports, catching up on life, doing the chores at home, etc., above church, right? Above the body, we're actually prioritizing something else and not this, right? When we take lots of weekend getaways, we're actually getting away from church. You don't do that from your job. You do that when you do that from church and you choose that. I'm not saying you can't go on vacation or celebrate your anniversary or do something. Of course you could do that. We should all get away and get some rest. But when you repeatedly choose things and prioritize them over church, you're actually not valuing one another in the room. You with me? That's what he's saying. 
You don't value one another enough that you belong to one another, that you prioritize one another. I was thinking this, like, how do we use this, like, even without using, like, a particular sin? So if I, if I just, after work, I decide, hey, I'm going to go hang out with Chris, right? We're going to go watch Monday Night Football, or tonight, Sunday football. We're going we're gonna to go do this. And then maybe tomorrow, you know, I'm going to go out with Jacob. We're going to go hang out after church. And then the next day, and the next day, and then finally Thursday night, I go home, right? What am I telling my wife? Well, I'm telling her that I didn't have anything better to do. That's how we treat church. That is a common thing we do today that we treat church. And we see that because didn't used to anything be on Sundays, right? The NFL didn't start playing games on Sundays until the 80s because nobody would watch. Now today, people will skip church just to watch their game even though they have a DVR, right? I mean, like, we can do better here. Here's what it is when we, when we choose these other things. Here's what we're doing. We've talked about that as sometimes that can be idolatry. Here's what I want you to hear today. We don't value the people in the room. We don't value the person sitting over there when we sit over here that we don't know yet. We don't value what they contribute to our faith. And we don't value what we contribute to their faith. You with me? We don't value the people in the room. And that's what's going on in Corinth. They're not valuing the other people, so they're going on and doing communion without the people that they value or without the people they don't value. Let's read it again, verse 20. When you come together, the emphasis of being a church, right? It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's important. I want to reread that. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, I know you got bread. I know you got juice or wine or whatever they're using. But it's not the Lord's Supper that you're doing. Verse 21, he says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So they have issues, for sure. And there's a distinct cultural difference that communion was done around a meal at church, right? And so they had this thing, so people are going on with the meal and communion, and they're being selfish, and they're not providing for those who don't have. They're abusing some parts of it, and they're doing this, but what they're saying, what the big issue is, the division is not valuing people in the church. Listen to that quick contrast. It's not the Lord's Supper, it is your own meal, right? He's just saying, listen, when you do that, it's not it, right? We've talked about different things. We don't do particular things in worship because it's not worship, right? It's more about us than it is about God. And so we try and, and make sure that we lean into what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be and that we, we do things the way God has created them, that we would not be told one day, hey, what you're doing, yeah, that's not church. Hey, what you're doing, that's not baptism. Hey, what you're doing, that's not communion. Hey, what you're doing, that's not worship. See, we never want to stand in front of God and just hear, you have been completely off track, right? Now, my expectation is we are off track somewhere because it'd be arrogant to think we have everything right. But if we knew where we were off, we'd fix it, right? If, if we, we find where we are, and that's what Paul is doing with this church is he's pointing out ways that they're off track, giving them opportunity to fix it right? The benefit is in the fixing. The upside is in the repentance and changing. Verse 22, he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? I love that Paul is as, as sarcastic and um, enjoyable to read, right? As he just pointed, like, what? You don't have your own houses to eat and drink in? He says, or do you? But this, he then says that that's kind of sarcastic. He says this, 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? He says, no, I will not. Again, pretty negative, pretty, pretty focused, pretty pointed. Do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? He's like, why do you, why do you bring that here? Then he says this, or do you despise the church, right? Again, they're not valuing one another. And the church is one another. It's not a building. It's not a service. It's the one another. It's the people. It's the people that belong here are the church, right? The people that call one another a, a family of families, a spiritual family, a body of Christ. That's what a church is. See, the gospel calls us to something, not just out of something. So the gospel is that God created us, designed us, loved us, made us without sin, but then we sinned and we broke what God made. We broke the world, we broke relationships, we broke one another, we broke ourselves, right? everything's broken. By the time we get here, we add sin upon sin upon sin, right? So we add to the problem. We didn't create the problem, but we definitely add to the problem. And so as we've been talking through in the catechism, so we need a redeemer. We need someone to come and take the junk that we've broken our lives to be and to fix it, right? And to redeem it and make it of value. And so Jesus enters into human flesh, becomes human. God becomes human, right? He lives the life that we were called to live, but we fail to live and we choose not to live. And then he dies a death in our place. He pays the penalty, taking the wrath of God upon himself in our place so that we don't have to. He is laid in a grave to cover our sin. He resurrects from the grave to give us new life. Now, it's here that a lot of times the gospel stops and it's like, but you say this prayer, you go to heaven. And No, right? I mean, maybe yes, but no, that's not where the gospel stops. See, Jesus ascends back to heaven to be Lord of our lives. We use that language, Lord and Savior. He is Lord, he leads, he is Savior, he saves from, right? If he is both things, that means he is Lord of our life today not just Savior who forgives sins. So he ascends to heaven, he pours out the Spirit upon the church, that's the very promise of baptism, that the Spirit will live inside us, lead us, guide us, transform us, and call us to be a church. The very final words of 2 Corinthians are the blessing that we've been using a lot. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and listen, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is drawing us together. If you just look around the room, there's a lot of people you would not normally hang out with. And I mean that with all due respect, right? But this it doesn't look like my friend group, right? I mean, like, this is, it's different. We're like, we have a, a lot of people. That's the work of the Spirit, that he calls us into a fellowship of a church, right? A local body that we can give ourselves to, and that we give and receive with others, that we live this life of faith with, all while waiting to the, for the hope or the consummation or the final return of Christ where the kingdom becomes where we will live forever. Kingdom now, kingdom forever. Kingdom in part, kingdom complete. While we're here, we're called to do here in a church. And that's where we break down. We hear this individualist gospel where it's all just me and my personal savior, words that don't exist in scripture for a reason. Because though he is your savior, though he is my savior, he is our savior. And then he saves us to a church. 
that he saves us to the kingdom, he saves us to heaven, he saves us to all those things, those are true, but then he intends us to live that out in a local church. Listen to the words that Peter, one of the closest disciples of Jesus while he was on earth, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, he's speaking to the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, so let's pause. When you were outside of Christ, you were not his people. In Christ, you become his people, plural, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He speaks to a local church using this. It's, it's the setting aside of nations. It's the, the setting aside of the priesthood. It's the, it's the setting aside of these other things and calling people to a local community of faith in which they will live out their faith together. See, Paul reminds us that we're not just saved from sin, but we're saved to the church. And not just the church in general, because it's impossible to live out the commands of the church in general, but he calls us to a local body, the church. And he does so that we can live out this life and, and, and grow with one another and learn from one another and, and, and live this life that God has called us to live, that Jesus created us for until the time where he returns. So he's saving us to something. Let's read, so let's read verse 22. He said, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So the idea behind Paul is he's saying, listen, do you despise the church by not valuing the church, by not valuing the people that are in the room with you that are called your family, your body, your church? Because Christ died to bring this person and this person together. That's the only way you get this odd or, or, or diverse, not odd sounds negative, but this diverse collection of people all in the same space is the gospel. And the very outworking of the Holy Spirit within us calls us together. That's why you've got one person over here is like this, and one person over here looks like this, and these two people that are nothing like each other sitting next to each other, that's how we get there. He says when you don't value that, you despise it. Do you despise the church of God? So here's one of the famous words we all hear regularly. We say these each week. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul gives some warnings. He, he calls out the sin. He then, with this, gives us the doctrine that will answer the problem. He then kind of solves the problem and how to do it and then kind of gives some application at the end. And his answer is to remind us that the gospel brings us together, that Jesus didn't die so that black folks could go to a church over here and white folks could go to a church over here, okay? And yet Sunday mornings that exist. Now, if your neighborhood's all black or your neighborhood's all white, cool, right? But when your neighborhood looks like our neighborhood, then your church should look like your neighborhood, right? It should look like the people around us. 
That doesn't mean we're like trying to check off people on a list. We're just trying to love our neighbor. And if our neighbor's Korean, our neighbor's Korean. If our neighbor's Hispanic, our neighbor's Hispanic. We don't care. We just love the people around us. And because of that, we begin to look like the neighborhood we're in. But the only way that actually works is a work of the Spirit, that God transforms us to be unlike our selfish selves who hang out with people who look and act and talk like us or like the same music as us or go to the same school as us. That the Holy Spirit transcends that and gives us a family, a faith family, a church. As Jesus gives us communion, he gives us something we celebrate as a church, as a body. Verse 23, let's walk through this a little slower. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul says, here's what Jesus gave me. I'm giving it to you exactly. You can read about this in the Gospels, just like this, right? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered for you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Christ gives of himself, right? Now, he's been doing that since the, since the incarnation where God became human and, and humbled himself and became flesh, right? So Jesus has been sacrificial since, you know, the very minute he became human, right? And then he's lived as a human being. He's, he's sacrificed. He's, he's given for people. He then goes and gives his life for, and it's just one more way that Jesus gives of himself or sacrifices or takes the penalty for us. He does so and then calls us to be sacrificial in our response to him. Then he commands us, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So he's giving the symbol or he's giving the, 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 the practice for the church. He's giving that to the apostles who are going to go out and really form the first century church. As they go and see people come to faith and baptize them into the church, he's going to give them the, what we'll just call the vow renewal ceremony, if you will, right? If, if the baptism is the wedding to the church, then communion is that reminder of what we're committed to. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here's a new covenant, right? The Old Testament covenants are fulfilled in Christ. Here is the new covenant. Here's how we live it out as a new covenant people. No longer are there blood, there are animal sacrifices, or other things concerning blood like the Old Testament had, because Christ's blood has fulfilled that. Now sin is paid for. The wrath of God, if you're in Christ, is averted. And now here's this, and it's bread and a cup. And he says, this cup is the symbol of the promise I'm making with you. Your sins, if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven right? And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So again, twice, do this in remembrance of me. So he commands the people of God to do so. Verse 26, for as often as you, and I pointed this out in the first couple messages, the yous here are plural. They're for the church. It's not an individual. It's a plural. It's the group, the church. For as often as you, plural, eat this bread and drink this cup, you, plural, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as you do this, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The way we, we say that here at Generations is we say that we're proclaiming the gospel over ourselves each time we do that, right? And because of that, it requires that those who are proclaiming the gospel have responded to the gospel, right? That you have to be a Christian in order to share Christianity with somebody else. Does that make sense, right? That you're in Christ, you can share Christ, right? And so it's a proclamation of Christ over ourselves. So we proclaim 
to ourselves. When we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim that over ourselves. We proclaim what binds us together. We proclaim it to our church. We proclaim Christ's death. We proclaim the very good news of the gospel that brings us together, that unites all of us. And we proclaim, when we proclaim Christ's death, we proclaim it to those who are not yet following Jesus. Right? We, we do that. We're, we're talking about the gospel as the very thing that transforms me, transforms us, transforms those who are not yet in Christ. Each time we do communion, which we typically do weekly, we are proclaiming the gospel over ourselves, over one another, and to hear or to see the gospel for those who have yet to respond to Christ. Verse 27, here comes the warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So in an unworthy manner. This ties us into the big theme of 1 Corinthians. He's dealing with unity and purity, right? Or the opposite would be disunity and impurity, right? Or not being together and sin that draws us apart. So in an unworthy manner, to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner is to do it falsely. He said, so you, if you're doing it in disunity, you're doing it falsely. If you're doing it with sin, which we all have sin, but if you're doing it knowingly not repenting of sin, he's saying you're doing it falsely. To be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord means that we misrepresent Christ and the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to those who are here who have not responded to Christ yet. Consider that. When we do it wrong, we misrepresent Christ to the church, or to the people, or to ourselves even. And another way we can say that is we're almost starting to preach a false gospel, right? We're, we're not treating the gospel with the weight that it's given. We're ignoring sin, or we're ignoring what it, what it means to follow Jesus. When we do that, when, we're, when we see the disunity, we see the imperfect, when we ignore that, we're, we're drifting towards a place that is no longer in the gospel. And so he says, when you do that, or he says, don't do that, right? But when you do it in an unworthy manner, you become guilty of the very gospel. Verse 28. He begins to give us a solution. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, let a person examine himself, right? Now, notice what we did. We went from plural to individual, right? You are not called to elbow the person next to you and go, you shouldn't be taking communion. Now, maybe that's a conversation you can have with the person next to you. But the idea, examine yourselves, right? You know your heart with Jesus, right? You know, hey, I'm living this way, which is not, not following Jesus, and, and, I, and, and I shouldn't be, and I'm, I'm willing to change. I'm unwilling to change. You know your heart, right? And, and I know that we've had conversations with people, and, and people ask, okay, should I be? And we walk through a gospel conversation with them. That's different, right? What I'm saying is this isn't about everybody else around you. For the first real time in this passage and in most of the book, it kind of turns to you for this moment. It says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when we examine ourselves to, to, to see are there ways that we are living unlike Christ, we really have two opportunities. We have an opportunity to confess sin and repent, right? We can confess sin in that moment and repent. We're prayerful. When we hand out communion, when we hand out the elements of, of communion, the bread and the cup, there's time, because if it starts here and it works its way back, we have this time that it takes to pass that out. 
and that's a time to examine yourself, right? Now, should I be participating? Is there something I need to confess to God that I've been hanging on to? The other opportunity is we can also abstain from communion due to we know we're being unrepentant, right? And, and that gives us that opportunity to at least be honest with God about it, right? And so we have these opportunities. Let's start again at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, here's where some new language Paul's adding, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He goes back to the plural. He uses that play on words again. Can we put those two verses? Do we have them on one slide or no? Can you just do the 1 Corinthians 10, please? Because there's one bread, we are, many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is in the last chapter, when Paul is reminding us about unity in the church, right? Now, here's what Paul is saying now in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to leave that one up for a minute. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice it now moves to examine yourself and discern the body. It moves from do you have personal sin? Do you have something you're not you are doing that's wrong or you're not doing that you should be doing. It gives you that opportunity. And then it says, discern your relationship to the church. It's calling us, hey, are we valuing this? This thing that Jesus has given us that created, that the very work or outworking of the Holy Spirit is, is this that we become part of one another? Are you living rightly in response to that, the body of Christ? So he gives us two ways that we examine ourselves. One is internally personally, and one is corporately. Do we value the people in this room? Next verse, you can take that off. Thank you. Verse 30, he says this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, it's a strong, stark warning, right? And there's no other passage that really expands on this. And so I've often said, like, we don't exactly know what Paul is saying. Now, we don't have the prior letter that Paul wrote. We definitely weren't there when he was in Corinth beginning the church in person. We don't have their letter to Paul. We have this other letter that he's writing in response, and there's clearly some specific circumstances that he's writing about. We don't know all of them, right? And, and, and it's, oftentimes, it's just better if we don't know to say we don't know, right? It's better than to say something that isn't true, right? So I was reading, this one author said this, I'll try and let me just read it. He says, not all illness and death are caused by this kind of sinning against the church, but evidently some is, right? So I thought that was a pretty measured response to that verse. Paul's not saying all sin, all illness, all death, all of this is due to this particular thing. But what he is saying is that something, some kind of thing is in response to this. And, and so even if we don't know how to answer, okay, what particular thing is he referring to in that church? What we can hear is the warning, right? We can hear, if you do this wrongly, you're guilty concerning the body of the Lord. And we can hear the strong warning, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We don't have to know what that means, but we can hear that and say, I should probably take this seriously, right? We can at least walk away from that sentence saying, there's something here I should pay attention to. Verse 31, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Again, sometimes the absence of the negative is itself the positive. 
If you are doing something to be judged by God, meaning in a, in a negative light, the removal of that judgment is the positive. Sometimes the, the removal of the negative is the positive. Let's read that again, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is a positive light in this. There is a very positive statement in here, but it's hidden in the words judged, disciplined, and condemned. And so I'm gonna, I want to give you a quote from Andrew David Nacelli. We'll put this up. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, it says, God condemns non-Christians, but he disciplines Christians. The goal of punishment and discipline differ. Punishment upholds justice, whereas discipline transforms character. Divine discipline is a God-ordained means for Christians to persevere. Here's what I want you to hear. I want to read that verse again. But if we, verse 31 and 32, but if we judged ourselves truly, we'd not be judged. So if we judged ourselves before we took communion, that's what he's saying. If we judged both our purity, our, our sin, and our unity, our relationship to one another, if we did that appropriately, God wouldn't judge us for this, right? That's what he says, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we being we the church, right? When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That this kind of judgment is discipline. This kind of pointing out something is wrong is loving correction from God with the purpose of restoration. Remember all the way back, third message, I think it was, 1 Corinthians, when they're told to remove the person from membership in the local church, and they say, hand him over to Satan, even maybe the destruction of his flesh so that it will, it will save him on the day of judgment. Like it makes a super strong statement about that. And thank God we have 2 Corinthians 2 where that very guy is restored to the church. It makes the, makes the preaching of that passage much easier. But the idea of discipline is always restoration. See, punishment is just a penalty to bring justice to a situation. But if you're judged by God, to, or if you're disciplined by God, the goal for you is to be, to be brought into restoration, or to be brought into a place where you're, you're in line with God. See, the removal of this is the positive, right? The, the removal of the discipline, when the, when the discipline is done, right, the benefit is there, right? We talk about communion being a means of grace, that we believe that God strengthens us in our sanctification, meaning our making us more like Christ, that a work of the Spirit is, is given to us, a grace is given to us in communion, that as food nourishes the body, I have to say, that communion nourishes or strengthens our spirit. It is a means of grace. That's why Jesus commanded us to participate in it, but to participate rightly, See, the doing it wrongly comes with its penalty, but the doing it rightly brings a means of grace, a strengthening, a sanctifying. Sanctification is the process of you becoming more, technically would be more holy, but an easier way of saying that more like Jesus. So it's a sanctifying work. It makes you more Christ-like, which by nature is, obviously, more holy. Verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, notice, when you come together for communion, when you gather, right? He says, wait for one another. Now, he's speaking specifically to their issue, that they're moving on without others. Maybe we today are saying, listen, value the others in the room. So when you gather for communion, understand the people on the other side that you've never said hi to matter to your faith and your life and your church. 
You have to figure out how that applies to you. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him go home, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give you directions when I come. So he has more to say on the issue that, that relates to them that may not be for us. But he calls them to a unity in the church, and he reminds them of the very symbol of our unity is communion. So I want to take the solution that Paul provides today, and I want to apply it in several ways. You can look back at verse 28 and verse 29. We spent some time on that, but I'm going to read it again. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, so examine yourself, discern the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do, want to, we do not want to hear Jesus say, it is for the worse, not the better. Right? Remember that opening line? When you gather together, it's for the worse, not the better. Okay, we want it to be for the better. We want it to be for the blessing. We want it to be for the good. We want that spiritual strength. We want that means of grace to be imparted through the preaching of the gospel and the participating in the sacrament. We want to do that. So how do we do that? One author gave six ways that we can look, right? It says examine, right? We can look. And so we're going to put them up three at a time. I think we've got two slides. Look within. Examine ourselves for sinful relationship issues with the church, verse 27 through 32. Look back. Remember the cross so that we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's 23 through 26. Look up, celebrate your union with Christ. If you are here and you are in Christ, you can celebrate that you are in Christ. Whether you are being hammered in this message or you're being affirmed that you actually do this well, no matter where you sit in that, your union with Christ is intact. Celebrate by looking up to Jesus. Look around. Celebrate your union with one another as one body. Look outward. Proclaim the gospel to those present who are not yet following Jesus. And finally, look forward, anticipate that Jesus is coming back and that this broken world will go away. So we look inside, we examine ourselves for sin, not just personal sin, but sin that may relate to one another. We look back at the work of the gospel, reminding ourselves the only reason we're here is because of the gospel. We look up and we remind ourselves of our union with Christ. The good news, the, the highlight of this is no matter how bad our mistakes are, no matter how bad our sins are, no matter how poor our understanding of the gospel or communion or church is, that if you're in Christ, you're united with Christ. Not partway, not in question, but in, you're in Christ. You can look up and celebrate your union. You can look around at the church and know that these are the people that God has given us to walk this life with. We are united. We can see those who are not yet following Jesus. And we can proclaim the gospel over them. And we can look forward to the day where Jesus makes everything right. There are six ways that we can examine ourselves before we participate in communion. So takeaways. What are the applications that we will make today? What, what, are, what is something that stood out that you want to apply to your life this week? Here's some thoughts. Myself, I want to begin looking at communion far more corporately. That it is my union with you and not just my individual union with Christ. I want to see that more as I participate in communion. That's my takeaway this week. For the mature believers in here, your job is to lead in showing how we are one body. 
For newer believers, if you're newer to the faith, learn to value the others in the room who are now your family. If you're not yet following Jesus, if you're, if you're not yet there, the gospel is that it, Jesus gave his life to bring you into a family, to make you a part of something new, to take you out of the world of sin, the world of being separate, the world of being other, and give you a family of faith. In addition to your family, maybe the people's school, your workplace, whatever, to give you a family that, that is centered on Christ, that the gospel gives you a new family. And kids and parents, Parents, do you use communion to evangelize your kids that are not yet baptized, have not made a confession of faith yet? And do you also use it for those who, who, are, who, who are followers of Jesus to teach them how this is a renewal of their faith each week? Parents, you get that job of using communion each week, whether your kids are yet to have made a confession of faith and should not be participating yet, or those who have made a profession of faith and teaching them this is how we remind ourselves of our walk with Jesus, our obedience to Christ, our love for one another. So let's take two, three minutes for the, wherever those around you, and let's just, what is your takeaway this week?